So, good evening. So, I'd like to give a talk this evening about some aspects of the meta practice. But first, I want to congratulate you for surviving your first 24 hours on retreat. For many of you, that's a great achievement to be here, to be in silence, to be meditating from 6.30 in the morning till late in the day. As you can see, it's not perhaps as easy as you thought it was going to be. For some people, the first day is quite challenging. Some people I know have had a lovely day. Other people have had a challenging day. For some of you, it's mixed. It's like life, ups and downs. I'm always amused by what some of the things people say on the first day when, because what we see is we, we, we encounter the, the reality versus our expectations. So often it can be a little disappointing because we have all these glowing expectations of, you know, I'm going on this, this weekend of love, you know, so we expect to be radiating blissful love all weekend, right? And it's why, partly why you sign up, because you think, oh, love at Spirit Rock. Mm. And then you find your head's nodding all day, or your knees are burning, or your back's aching, or you can't stop obsessing about something at work. So we get to show up. We get to meet the conditions of our life. There's a cartoon, um, there's a show... I don't know the show, but I think it's called So You Think You Can Dance at a show, right, on TV. So this cartoon, there's a, it's a similar setup. There's a stage, there's the lights on the stage, and there's three judges, and there's a guy meditating, and the show is called So You Think You Can Meditate. <laughs> so this is, this is uh, I guess, a reflection for you. <laughs> Imagine yourself on the stage here at Spirit Rock. So you think you can meditate. <laughs> and... Practice and retreat practice, if, if, is, if, if anything, it's humbling, right? It's humbling to, you know, we give you these simple instructions. Pay attention, be kind, say a few phrases. And sometimes it's impossible to get through four of those phrases without the mind turning them into mush or wandering off or, you know. So we say this practice is simple but not easy and the practice of love, of kindness, of unconditional friendliness is also uh, not easy as you've discovered. So it, 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 it's like the practice is like a mirror. It, it, it takes us back to ourselves and, and, we, and we look really closely. Well, well how, how is it? But what gets in the way of me feeling naturally warm and friendly and kind to myself, to others? And today is sort of perhaps the easier day in the sense that we're doing people who are supposedly easy, the benefactor, the friend, ourselves, um, but still not so easy. This is from Rilke. He says, for, for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult tasks of all the ultimate last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. The task to love another and to love ourselves. No small thing. And on this retreat, we're, 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 there's two sort of challenges. One is we're cultivating the mind. We're cultivating the garden of the mind to develop concentration and focus and a unification around these intentions. Yeah? So we're developing concentration as a practice, which is a whole practice in itself that you can take many decades in refining and deepening. And then we're also developing the heart, developing this profound quality of love, which is also really a lifetime's work. So that's why I mentioned at the beginning to be patient and to be kind with your selves and your practice and where you are, not to expect something that's really unrealistic in which you set yourself up to fail, in which you kind of trigger the critic to come in. 
So I want to talk a little first about the, some of the obstacles that come up because many of you talked about them in the groups and just want to contextualize and normalize some of the things that you may be thinking there's something wrong with you because of all these things that are coming up. So I know sometimes what happens in the beginning of retreat is this sense of disappointment because it's not living up to what you thought it would be or your practice isn't quite what you thought it was. Or there can be judgment about people here, about us, about the, the practice, I should be somewhere else, how come I'm not, as one woman said, how come I'm not sipping Chardonnay at a spa in Napa right now? <laughs> Somebody once said, how come I'm not at work? I'd rather be at work, it's much easier <laughs> than being with myself. You know, perhaps it is for some of us. And so often what happens is it triggers the, the, the hindrance of doubt. This is too hard. I can't do this. People told me that I wouldn't be able to do this. I've never been able to succeed at meditation. My heart's really closed, yada, yada, yada. Anybody having doubting mind, self-doubt? Just curious, anybody noticing that? Okay. Or are we just coming up against our tiredness, sloth, sleepiness, just the, 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 the jet lag of our lives. The way that we live our lives is generally not so in tune with our body. And so we arrive on a retreat and we crash just with exhaustion, just from the day-to-day busyness of our lives. So I know a lot of you talked about that, about feeling foggy and dull and sleepy. And it's, and it's a good reflection to see, well, how is it that I'm here doing nothing, being fed and looked after, and I'm falling asleep all day? You know, what's up with that? Not to judge that, but just to say, oh, how, what does that say about my life and, my, and the way that I might be driving my body? Or the, the hindrance of not wanting to be here because it's difficult and hard work, so we create a fantasy. We start creating our vacation stories or uh, what I'm going to do at the end of the retreat. We, spend, you know, we probably spent months thinking about getting here and being here, and then, oh, I can't wait for Sunday afternoon, I'm going <laughs> to do all these things. And just to watch the way the mind is so unsatisfied with where we are. And it looks for something, for, for candy, right? Oh, it's boring here, well, let me go create a sexual fantasy or, or holiday fantasy or something right? to keep me stimulated because we're so stimulated in our lives. Or it triggers restlessness, another of the hindrances that comes. There's agitation, no, it's just some people have talked about it being hard just to sit in the meditation seat, just to stay in the room without running out, running up the hill. Yeah, it's hard to MOOC to come from the momentum and the, the pace in which we live to slowing down, to coming into a slower rhythm with ourselves, with our body. And all of this is quite normal. It's what happens as we, as we engage with these kind of practices, we engage with this kind of form. It's not that you're doing anything wrong. And the question is, how, you, how do you meet that? How do you work with that when it comes up? I notice often when I do retreats in the beginning, I'm pretty tired, and particularly meta retreats, they, because it requires a lot more effort to keep saying the phrases all day. And um, so I've noticed the phrases get really interesting when I'm sleepy. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's just really, it, this is a sign you're kind of nodding off when the phrases get really wacky. So some of the things I've remembered, um, one of the phrases I said to him is, may I have contempt? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what these were variations of. May, may you be fretful in hell. <laughs> may you eat peas. May you be weepy and hippie, or hippie and weepy. So you probably got your own variety of just that the mind just kind of gets loopy loo. Yeah? So this is normal. Or we get so agitated we just can't stay with the phrases. One, one woman left us a note on a previous retreat. She said, I was fine before lunch. Now I have a monkey mind and body and everyone is getting on my nerves. What's up? You know, we just, we, something triggers us and we get restless and agitated and we just can't stand to be where we are in ourselves. Another thing that comes up that we'll notice not just in this retreat but in our lives, and again, you've, many of you talked about it in the groups, is the judging mind, which is really the antithesis of the meta heart the mind that's like, you know, sits right here on your shoulder or both shoulders and, 
uh, it's good, but it's not that good. Your meditation's okay, but not that okay. And you don't really think you're going to be kind, do you? You don't really, I don't really believe you, you, you care about that person to wish them well. Right? So that subtle undermining voice that's questioning, doubting your capacity, doubting your goodness, doubting yourself, doubting your ability, doubting your life. So good to see, recognize when that voice is happening. Oh, thank you, judge, critic, whatever we call it. Very helpful to tell me I blew it again and I messed up again and I'm never going to get my life together again and why do I give up this meditation right now because it's a waste of time again, thank you. Noticing it, oh, judging, thank you, very helpful, go bother somebody else, have a nice day. There's, an ad, there's a comic strip I like to read that um, uh, it's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic and it's like uh, the, the, some, of the, some of the statements from the critic or the, the, the habits so there's a cartoon the woman's thinking about somebody who's doing well choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them <laughs> look in the mirror and notice all the flaws this is a popular meditation pastime relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago <laughs> and then repeat have a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, including the people that share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a picture of a woman getting a compliment. She's thinking, don't patronize me. So in a way, the, the, the meta practice, the, the steady repetition of phrases is creating new neural pathways. Uh, uh, General self-talk often is negative, is self-deprecating, is undermining, and that creates very deep grooves in the mind and the heart. And so we're supplanting, we're replacing those tendencies with kind, with generous, with warm, with friendly uh, habits of, of thought, of mind and heart. So one of the things that I, that I mentioned yesterday and I want to stress today is to remember that metta is, a, is, a, is an attitude of heart. It's an attitude in which we orient towards the moment, towards ourselves and towards experience and towards each other. It's a quality of heart we bring to any moment. And in particular to all those difficult obstacles or habits of mind to know, well, how can, I, how can I be kind when I'm sleepy, when I'm restless, when I'm agitated, when I'm spacing out, when I'm fantasizing? How, how do I be, be uh, not condemning and accepting and being warm and friendly with all of that? When, you're, when, the, when your pain in your body is too much to bear, yeah? or, when, or when the grief and sorrow that you've brought from your life bubbles up in the meditation, how do you meet that? Yeah, so the practice is asking you, how do you turn towards yourself when things are difficult and when things are going well? Rumi said, if God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought or feeling or any act I would not bow to. Yeah, so what helps us enter move towards the sacred to the divine. Yeah. Often it's the most difficult things in our life, the challenges, the pain, the difficulty. And it opens our heart. So for me, the, the practice of metta begins with this attitude and a sense of welcoming, a sense of inviting everything in ourselves to be okay, to be as it is, to be here, to be uh, received rather than rejected or, or withdrawn from or hated. Or... So this is a poem. And it, the, 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 the spirit is really, it's, it's about how do we attend to our humanness, right? with our foibles and our desires and our longings and our idiosyncrasies and our weirdness. I mean, when we sit in meditation, we see how wacky we are. We see how wacky the mind is and our thoughts and feelings. I mean, we're really quite strange creatures. And this is what we've got. So how do we, how do we show up for, for ourselves? There's a poem that I love by the poet 
Mary Howe. Uh, it's called What the Living Do, and it speaks to this, this kind of showing up to our humanness. She's writing to her brother Johnny, who uh, passed away with AIDS when he was 28. She writes, Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep headstrong blue. The sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say, the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living and I remember you. There are moments walking when I find and I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my blowing hair, my chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm left speechless. This is that, that moment we turn to ourselves with all of the mess of our block kitchen sink and the chaos of our lives. Anybody not have a messy life? Does anybody's life look like it is on TV? It's all clean and linear and smooth. No, it's, it's chaotic and it's messy and it's unexpected and it's full of surprises and challenges and there's the invitation can I show up for that myself with all of that stuff kindly and that's the, that's the, we have that choice in any moment to turn kindly or to turn away. We spend a lot of our lives running away from the moment, which is why it's so hard to be here, why so many people don't want to show up here, why it's challenging to be in the silence, because we have to face ourselves, be with ourselves. The, the, The philosopher Louis Pasteur said, most of the world's problems would be solved if we could just learn to sit quietly in a room by ourselves for a few hours. Yeah, but that's really challenging without our iPods and texting and who knows whatever gadget to to keep us from just being with the challenge of being here. So some time ago I was teaching a course, I think it was a meta retreat, and um, a woman uh, came in for a meeting, um, as we do here, and she was talking about really some really deep early pain. She had very traumatic uh, sex abuse history from very early age, um, and the most painful time being about when she was five. And she talked about having blamed and judged and hated herself since that time onward. And she was, this was, you know, some 40, some year, 40, 50 years after that event. And we talked about how the practice can work with that, how to turn to that, how to meet that young part of her that was really still gripped in that terror and shame and fear and loathing. And so she came into a a very loving, kind, accepting relationship with that young part of her that she'd she'd always always turned away from because of the pain. And as the, the days of the retreat went on, it was the first time that she'd been able to hold that experience and hold that part of herself. And something transformed in the turning towards with kindness, turning towards with acceptance. And she, she left the retreat in an incredible uh, uh, sense of possibility and optimism. And it's, it seems so simple and yet so radically transformative and yet not so easy to turn into. So... In the beginning, we talked about the, the, 
a little bit about the relationship between the practices of mindfulness and metta. And mindfulness practice is the basis of the practices that we teach here in, in the Vipassana tradition. To be present, to be aware. And the, the kindness and the love is what arises out of that quality of attention. That they're not separate. We teach them as separate practices. The mindfulness practice and the metta practice are quite different in their technique and their methodology. But they come together in our experience. And over time, what I see in my own experience is that they... That Mindfulness is infused with, with matter, and matter in, is infused with presence, that we can't have one without the other. There's a lovely expression from a great Zen teacher, the sixth Zen patriarch. He said, awareness is the foundation of kindness, but kindness is the expression of awareness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Mary Oliver, the poet, puts it this way. There is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that does not cease to foster wonder, and with wonder comes love. If there is anything, I haven't found it yet. So when many of you commented about being here outside and walking and being touched by the birds and the lizards and uh, things, and you see that, you see that if we're really present and awake and attentive and without any... blockage in the heart, the, the heart moves forward, it blooms, it, it feels, it connects, it feels one with to some degree. So the, the presence, the kindness arises out of the presence. Right? We need both qualities. Somebody was talking today, and this is a very common experience that happens on every meta retreat I do, where, um, so the, this person was talking about um, watching a lizard and a fly, and appreciating both of them. And then, of course, the fly did its dance, and then the lizard did its move, and there was no more fly. And the hearts, you know, the heart is, the heart wants both to be happy. Meta is very paradoxical in that we want all life to be happy, right? But that lizard needs the fly to live. It can't go down and get some tofu from the kitchen. It's stuck with, you know, being a carnival. And I've seen this many, many retreats of different variations. I was just teaching a retreat the other week, and there was a, there, we had these amazing silver foxes. And, and people were, in, were engrossed in, in watching the fox hunting and jumping over the holes and waiting. And I just kept thinking, what about the mice? There's lovely field mice with the little ears. And, um, and the heart wants everything to be well. You know? I want the fox to live, but I want the mice to live. Yeah. So that's as we, as we open, that's... And, and these, these phrases of metta, that they come from that place. When we say, may all beings, may all life be happy, we generally, that's what the heart wishes. And knowing that on this world, for life to flourish, some life needs to eat other life. That's just how it works. And we still want life to be happy and safe and protected. Yeah. So we'd, so the, but the heart can hold those paradoxes. It's a little harder for the mind. So as we know, one of the things that's most needed in this world when we look around at the state of the world, at the suffering, we listen to the radio, watch TV, I notice when I'm driving, uh, especially out of the bubble of the Bay Area, and I'm uh, listening and noticing how much talk radio is filled with vehemence and blame and anger and hatred and, and uh, Aggression. I don't hear many meta radio stations. It's just not what sells, you know, the love channel. I haven't come across it yet, you know. So, so much uh, orientation towards what's wrong, the difficult, and to blame, to hatred. There's this cartoon I came across in the New Yorker. Um, where the woman's leaning over to her husband and she's saying, so it was only one Nobel Prize you won, dear, wasn't it? <laughs> and I, I sense also that the, 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 the root of so much of suffering, particularly I see it in this country, but it's really pretty rampant everywhere, is the sense of separation, 
the sense of isolation and loneliness and aloneness that's underlying so many neuroses and, and, and difficulties and mental health issues uh, and various disorders. And matter is a wonderful self for, for so many of these, for some of these, these experiences because it, it dissolves a sense of separation. It is what allows us to connect, what allows the heart to reach out. This is a piece from uh, Thomas Merton, who was um, uh, a monk, uh, I forget which order he was in, Trappist, Benedictine, not coming to me, um, who spent a lot of time in, in solitude. But, but he, he also d- developed, in a way, his own practice of metta, and in his writing, it's really clear how that manifested, despite his often solitary life. So he was living in, in the South, and he writes, In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine became incarnate. There was no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. Actually, somebody in a group mentioned an experience like that today where where momentarily that sense of separation uh, dissolved and there's just a sense of, oh yeah, we are connected. We are actually one. There's actually a part of the brain I've just discovered that maintains our sense of separation until the last few days of our lives. That maintains that sense of me and mine separateness because it allows us to function. Otherwise, you know, it's a little more challenging when, every, when we're all one and we wouldn't know whose shoes to put on and you know, which fork, which mouth to feed and you know, it gets confusing. So there's a place for, for that individuality. But we get caught in that and then we feel isolated and we feel the pain of that. Another thing I want to remind us about the practice is uh, the inherent nature of this quality in ourselves. So again, when we're practicing the cultivation part of metta, it feels like we're trying to generate something that's not already here. And I find it really helpful to remember Oh yeah, this quality of kindness, of care, of warmth, of friendliness, I know this. This, this is not alien to my experience. This is not outside of my, my understanding. Right? To remember that we're just bringing forth that which is naturally within you. And we're looking at what gets in the way of that, the habits, the tendencies. So Gary Larson, the great uh, Dharma teacher, um, has a cartoon about this from the far side. So we're in hell and um, the Satan's walking out of the fiery den and there's a bunch of new recruits into hell and he's shouting, Mom, no, no. And then the caption says, despite his repeated efforts and explaining things to her, Satan could never persuade, never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and there's a picture of her with a little tray. She's got a you know devil's pinion and a with a tail sticking out, and she's got a little tray, and she's going around to all these new people in hell. Mom, no! You know, it, we it's unstoppable, this desire to help. You know, if someone falls down, we, we're right there, and we help them pick, we pick them up. Yeah. And I was walking up the road, and I saw a, a lizard being run over uh, by something, probably the, one of the carts, and I just, like, it was burning in my heart. You know, it's just that, that's the nature of the heart, is to care, is to love. Yeah. There was a um, rather odd but amusing um, uh, contest. There was a contest somewhere to try and find the most caring child. Um, It's a slightly odd thing to do, but anyhow, we're humans, so that happens. And um, uh, this young boy, I forget how old he was, uh, he doesn't say, about five or six, I think, a four-year-old, 
won the competition by a story his mother told of uh, they were living next door to an elderly couple and and the the woman passed away and the man was was very sorrowful and would sit on his uh, porch and one day the little boy ran up the path uh, like of his mom's hand and uh, just crawled into the the old man's lap um, and stayed there a while and uh, and then he, like, he came back, and, and his mother said, so, so what happened? What did you do? What did you say? And he said, oh, nothing. I just helped him cry. I just helped him cry. Just that simple. You know, we know, you know, we know. children know this. We know this. It's very instinctual. It doesn't take a lot of um, rocket science. So I wanted to share this story, which I was very profoundly touched by um, when I read it a couple of weeks ago. Um, and again, it speaks to uh, the, the power of the heart. And what the, the place of meta practice is, as I said, we're planting seeds. So the, the, the availability of the heart is more accessible. That, that we're more likely to respond with warmth and kindness as we do this practice in our lives. Twenty years ago, I drove a cab for a living. One night, I took a fare at 2.30 a.m. when I arrived to collect. The building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. You carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm, and we walked slowly towards the cab. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I'd want my mother treated. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, Could you drive through downtown? Well, it's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city, She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. At the first hint of sun, as the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up, opened the trunk and took the suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Oh, nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. Oh, there are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. Our hug ended with her remark, You gave an old woman a little moment of joy. After a slight pause, she added, Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked into the morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought for the rest of the day. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run, or had honked once, then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So, a very touching story. I tear up every time I read it. Um, just the simplicity 
the, the ordinariness and the profundity of the kind heart. And, and as the story reveals, we never know when it's going to happen. You know, what person's going to reach out for help, for contact, a friend, an acquaintance, a loved one, somebody we don't know, strangers. So noticing what you're feeling as you listen to that story, what, what, how it touches you or doesn't touch you. How the heart knows instinctually what kindness is. It has some kind of empathic response to it. Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm always heartened by the uh, like driving around, seeing people with the, the bumper stickers, practice random acts of kindness. And just the, the, the various kind of kindnesses that, that, that um, I notice, more maybe it's just because on my radar, different organizations. Um, there's one organization I track called Service Space that does wonderful, um, gives a lot of importance to people doing uh, kindness in the world. And they... Um, uh, they talked about a, they had a story about a, a class that um, uh, the I forget um, how old the kids were. I think sixth graders. Um, they they developed a class called called practicing random acts of kindness. And so in the school they would practice various kinds of matter. In a way they would you know write poems and leave them in the park and around the school they'd write kind notes to the teacher, telling them to be kind to students and um, just doing really sweet things and. Of course, again, I think it's more uh, uh, natural for children to do that. They do have this other wonderful project called Pay It Forward. Anybody familiar with Pay It Forward? There's a Pay It Forward um, cafe in the East Bay where you show up to the cafe and you, your meal has already been paid for by the people who come before you and then you are given the chance, kind of like in the Dana culture here, you're given the chance to pay for someone else's dinner. And there's all kinds of wonderful stories of... Um, like a woman who does, who gives flowers away, um, and and now she has a relationship with the florist, and uh, the florist is always giving her free flowers so she can give it away because because it feels good to be kind, it feels good to share. Or a story of a woman who went to a restaurant and she you, you get these um, uh, smile cards when you when you decide when you pay f- pay for someone's meal in a restaurant, so instead of getting the bill, they get a smile card saying something your 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 bill's been paid for, have a nice day. Um, and then you're invited to pay it forward. So this woman paid for this, this guy's meal and it was looking lonely in the corner. And then he was so touched, he paid for somebody else's dinner and it went round the restaurant and half the restaurant got their meals paid for by somebody else. And happiness is contagious. Kindness is contagious. Yeah, the, the heart wants to be kind. When we can step out of our more egoic fears and uh, constrictions and uh, anxieties and... So one of the thing I, things I think about when I reflect about this quality is I think about the people who embody it. So if you think about the people who, who express or embody kindness or matter in your life, just take a moment to think about someone or some people who really have developed this quality, either naturally, they're just born that way, or they've really worked on it. Teachers, friends. And I, I know when I do that, it kind of gladdens my heart. I think about their, their largeness of heart. And I think about the teachers that I've studied with. I've studied with many, many different teachers. And I've noticed how some teachers may be very brilliant in their wisdom and their clarity and their knowledge. But if, they haven't, if, if it's not shining through the heart, for me it, feels, it doesn't feel integrated. It doesn't feel complete. And I'm not so drawn. And then there are other teachers who may not be so intellectually... Uh, brilliant and, and dazzling with their words, but they just radiate this kindness. And I know I'm just instinctively drawn to what they're embodying. Yeah. And I think the proof of the pudding of all these practices is, is how we embody this, how we actually walk our talk, how we live, how we relate, how we communicate. So someone asked about the origin of this practice the origin of this practice goes back to uh, the Buddha and his teaching 
you know, the Buddha's emphasis was, was understanding how and why we suffer and how, we, and how and why we can be free, how we can be happy. And he taught the practices of love and kindness and appreciative joy and equanimity as supports for our happiness, for our well-being. I was reading some research recently um, when there were uh, some researchers at, I think, in Richie Davison's lab, um, who's done a lot of work on mindfulness in the brain, and he was uh, uh, studying. Um, he had the uh, the MRIs um, and all the brain mapping stuff on um, Mingyu Rinpoche and uh, um, Mathieu Ricard, and who's and and their 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 meditation prowess, particularly in developing the heart and compassion practice, um, was, was really phenomenal. And so they, they, they tracked them doing these, these meditations, and they, they were sort of um, given the title happiest, happiest people in the world, because they'd never seen such levels of happiness registered in the brain when people were doing these heart practices, because they developed that practice to such a degree. And so it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful um, side effect of developing the heart, is we feel happy. Yeah? You ever felt miserable and feeling loving somebody? No. It feels joyful. It feels uplifting. It feels connecting. It feels expansive. Yeah? So some other aspects of metta... I want to say some words um, about, I, I understand, the, th- the three phases of metta, or the three sort of domains. The first is the domain of ourselves. Looking at how we, looking at our relationship to ourselves, to the kindness to ourselves. So as many of you know, the Buddha said, there's nobody, there's nobody more deserving of our love and our kindness than ourself. We may not feel that way at times, maybe a lot of the time. And so this is really an edge, as many of you have also shared in the groups, about that way that we, we, we feel a block or an obstacle to our kindness, to our self, just to, to, an, to our humanness. And so that really is worthy of our attention. What, what is that? What, what is it that doesn't allow me to appreciate uh, and acknowledge my own goodness, my qualities, my, see myself in a clear way? to feel fondness and tenderness. Yeah. Why is it that we're harsh and, and rejecting or critical? This is from the poet Ryokan, wonderful Zen hermit and poet. The first day of autumn, returning from my arms round, I set down my bowl by the temple to go play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. So you can feel in that spirit, right? He's not like, oh, no change, oh, you're just a loser. (laughs) Like, what's up with your practice, you know? No, oh, last year, foolish monk, this year, no change. Oh, this is how it is. And there's a sweetness and there's a tenderness in there. Yeah. So what would it be to look at ourselves and go, oh, last year, um, I don't know, Feeling silly. <laughs> this year, no change. Last year, feeling sad. This year, no change. Last year, feeling... Who knows what? This year, who knows what? Can we come into a kind relationship with our bodies? What would it be to be kind to our bodies? What would it be for, from this moment till the end of the retreat, you express kindness for your body? What would that look like to be, have that quality of listening... So you, you see, you're, you're attentive to what the body needs. Yeah. I know people who go to work and they forget about their bodies until they come home. And it's like, oh, I'm starving. Oh, I'm really tired. Oh, I'm, do I have a body? Oh, yeah, I do, yeah. You know, we forget about ourselves. Yeah. And it, it can be an act of cruelty, self-neglect. So what would it be to just listen to the body? Oh, what does the body know? It needs to rest, it needs to eat, it needs to move, it needs to be still, it needs to open, it needs to... Be quiet. Who knows what it needs? Or to turn to the mind, the crazy mind, our busy mind, our restless mind that thinks a million thoughts a day. What would it be to have some 
kindness to that, rather than, oh, it's a you know, judging and it's thinking too much and it's always getting in the way. Or to attend to our, to our, to our difficulty, our, uh, our burdens. There's a lovely line that, I, that I, I, like, I reflect on a lot. It says, be kind to every person that you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden, including ourselves. This is from Hermann Hesse. He says, you know quite well deep within you that there is only a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving. Well then, if that is true, then love yourself, love your suffering, do not resist or flee from it. It is only your aversion to it that hurts and nothing else. So what would it be to turn kindly to ourselves when we're, in, when we're not in an easy place, yeah? which is often the case. And then the turning, the offering, the extending of the heart comes easier. I know that I've really explored that in my experience over these past 25 years of doing this practice. Really to see how when, when that, that relationship with myself is uh, kind, is attuned, is warm, is empathic, then that just, it spills over. It can't help but spill over. There's a sensitivity, there's a warmth, there's a there's an interest. When I'm shut down here, I'm not that interested out there either, frankly. They go together. So to be really atten- attentive to what's here. And then, and then, it, then it, can, it can really more easily flow. There's this lovely poem um, by a Palestinian poet. Um, actually, I'm not going to read that poem. I'm going to read something else. Um, I'm going to read a shorter poem uh, by uh, Mary Oliver who expresses um, uh, this quality of care that, that, that spills over. And it's really, the, the Buddha has this lovely line that I, that, I, that I really take to heart. He said, whatever we frequently dwell, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and the heart. So we can see this in, on the retreat. We, we come into retreat and we see the inclination. Whatever we do in our lives, that's what, that's what we practice, that's what we become. So if we practice kindness, guess what? Over time, we become more kind. I know it sounds very reductionistic, but it's true. In praise of craziness of a certain kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor, so she said the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for, for myself, but being so struck by the lightning of years, to be like her with what is left, that loving. So sometimes it's that simple. Laying newspaper over the floor (laughs) to keep the ants warm in winter. So I am running out of time here, so I'm going to just wrap this up. I've said enough. (laughs) So I think what I'd like to leave you with is um, to, uh, to trust your experience, to trust yourself, to trust your heart, to give yourself to the practice, Having seen how I've seen how it's transformed my own experience and the experience of many, many others, um, to uh, keep remembering that this quality is arising from something that's already within you, to remember it's an attitude of heart that you can bring to bear in any moment. You can ask yourself, how am I meeting myself in this experience in this moment? And what would be an inclination towards kindness? What would be just 
10 degrees of kindness more than I'm mustering in this moment? What would that look like? Or if I imagine the most kind person I know standing behind me, how would they be orienting to this experience? And over time, as we nurture this quality, we have more access, as the seeds start to sprout, we have more access to a more... uh, uh, It just becomes more accessible. I don't want to make it sound too lofty. Um, But the Buddha refers to 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 metta as gentle rain that, that, that settles equally over all. And that we find over time with some... Perseverance with the practice that that becomes, we can actually taste that, we can feel that. In the words of the, the uh, Sufi poet Hafez, I'll close with this poem, he says, um, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at, look at what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Look what happens to a love like that that's giving, that's bestowing, that's life-giving, generating. It lights up the whole sky. So may our practice light up the whole sky. So let's just sit quietly for a moment just to let the words sink in and dissolve back into the silence. May our practice here together generate the garden of kindness so that the seeds of love grow and flower. So thank you for your attention. So we'll have a little walking period and we'll come back uh, quarter to nine for some sitting, the final sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.